Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to the third episode of the first series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. This time we look at how to create a culture-first company. The renowned management guru, Peter Drucker, conceived the immortal phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And any company disconnecting the two is putting their success at risk. Indeed, there is mounting evidence of the clear business benefits in having a healthy and inclusive culture. But how do you create a culture-first company? And how do you measure your progress against the backdrop of greater employee expectations, rapid advances in technology, and changing work models? Also, given the increasingly turbulent times in which we live, how do you adapt and evolve your company culture? Our guest today is Didier Elzinga, founder and CEO at CultureAmp, one of the success stories in HR tech in recent years, and a company that passionately believes the world should be a better place to work. In our podcast, Didi and I discuss how staying true to the culture first ethos has helped propel CultureAmp's impressive growth. We talk about the key milestones in CultureAmp's journey to date, including the recent acquisition of Zagata and the launch of its new predictive analytics features. We also talk about the impressive 50,000 strong People Geeks community that CultureAmp has built since its inception and the upcoming Culture First conference in San Francisco at the end of July. Given Didier's role, we talk about the challenges involved in being CEO of a fast-growing HR tech company. And finally, we also look ahead and ponder what the role of HR will be in 2025. This episode is a must-listen for senior HR leaders and anyone working in the fields of employee engagement, employee experience and performance, diversity and inclusion, and people analytics. Didier is a very engaging and knowledgeable speaker, so I know listeners will enjoy this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for this series of five episodes of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Support is brought to you by CultureAmp. CultureAmp is the world's largest people and culture platform that helps companies take action to improve employee engagement, retention and performance. CultureAmp is a culture-first certified B Corporation used by over 2,100 customers, including brands such as Airbnb, Kind Snacks, Autotrader, Salesforce, Slack, and McDonald's. Start developing a deep understanding of your employees' experience today by visiting cultureamp.com. That's cultureamp.com. Welcome to the Digital HR Leader Show, Didier. It's great to have you on. Please, can you give an introduction to yourself and to CultureAmp? Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so I'm the CEO and founder of CultureAmp. And CultureAmp is a people and culture platform. And the way we think about it is that we help our customers collect, understand, but most importantly, act on people data. And we see that people and culture is the biggest level that organizations have to be successful today. And so we want to help them do that. Um, and we build software to do so. And since you started the company back in 2011, you, you had a really clearly defined vision of building a new type of organization, um, a company that put, truly puts culture first. Mm. You know, it's been a consistent message throughout, throughout the time. You know, what do you actually mean by that? Hmm. I get asked this question a lot. <laughs> and I, there's kind of two levels to answer. One is, it's a very simple version. It means what it is. Put culture first. And it comes from this idea that it is the biggest level we have, and if you want to be financially successful, you need to be customer-centric. 
but if you want to be customer centric, you actually have to put culture first. So culture is the, the lever or the driver of everything else. And I think we're seeing that increasingly understood. So there's a, there's a slide that I have which shows the um, S&P 500 for the last 80 years and tangible versus intangible assets. 80 years ago, 80% tangible assets, factories, equipment, inventory, et cetera. Now it's 80% intangible. So the value in your business is in your people's heads. And managing culture is about managing that, working out how to get the most out of it, how to use it to make your business successful. And this is something you actually you live yourselves within Culture Yeah, we talk about it all the time, which is like we want to build software to help our customers put culture first, but we have to be culture first too. Mm. And at some level, I, I feel like the legacy that I want to leave, the thing that's most important to me is not just you know, how many customers we have or how much revenue we have, but were we capable or were we able to build a culture first company at scale? You know, we'll make as much difference in the world by people looking at how we built our company as we will by the software that they're using. Exactly. And, and, you know, and certainly, you know, you've built a great reputation within the industry since you started back in 2011, which actually is eight years ago, but it doesn't seem that long. <laughs> um, what have, what have some of the main, been, been some of the main milestones along, along that journey? Oh, it's been eight, eight years. It, does, it actually in some ways feels long, longer than that. Um, I think, you know, what was really interesting is early on, people just thought it was crazy. You know, it was one of those things where no one could really see why we were doing it. So some of the first milestones were those people that believed in us. So uh, Adobe's been a customer of ours almost the entire journey. And I know when we started working with them, their team working on the project was bigger than our company. And, you know, you look back on at the time you're a, you're a startup and so you're like, yes, of course, they're going to work with us. But I look back and think, you know, Ellie Gates and Donna Morris and, and the people that there that believed in us, that was a huge milestone that they needed what we were building. And we still work with them today. Uh, so from the early days, we actually bootstrapped the company. So through to 2015, we didn't take any funding. Uh, we built the company up to about a million dollars in revenue. We had 15 people. And we had you know, these customers all over the world, your Airbnbs and your Box and Pinterest, all these sorts of companies. And then since then, what's been fascinating is we, we took VC money because we sort of got to the point where we were growing quickly enough that we needed that to sustain it. Um, but we also went beyond tech. So we now have 2,000 customers globally um, in almost every industry you can possibly imagine. And from 50 people at the bottom end to like 100,000 people at the top end. So it's that, that whole spectrum. Um, and for me, all these things are amazing, but it feels like today we're actually just at the point where it's starting. You know, when I talked about collect, understand, and act, okay, now people can collect the data. 10 years ago, they probably could, like we needed the technology to be able to do this better. Today, we can do amazing things from an analytic point of view in terms of understanding. We can help bring understanding to the data. We can help derive insight. But the battle line now is, okay, but how do you help people act? And for me, we're just at the beginning of that again. So it's, it's almost like we're back to the starting line. <laughs> <laughs> and you've, it's been a, a year of firsts already. I, I, mm. I know you just brought the whole company together in Australia. Mm. 350 people in the Yarra Valley. It was, um, that was incredible. It was uh, you know, intense. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, it was very powerful. Mm. And we learned a lot. And I think one of the things when I took, you know, we've been intentionally culture first since the beginning. And that doesn't mean that we're perfect. We're not. No one is. Like a perfect culture is a cult. Um, a lot of being culture first is actually being willing to say, hold up the mirror and be accountable to what you see. And so, you know, we learn all these things, having everybody come to, to Melbourne, many of which were like, oh, okay, how are we going to do that differently again if we had to do it again? 
Um, but having built a company over that time, uh, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, we, we acquired a company in, in Zagata. And one of the amazing moments is there's two developers who work for them who live in Brazil. And they came, we brought everybody over. It was the first time they'd actually met the people that they worked with at Zagata in person was at Culture Camp where we wow. were all together. So it was pretty amazing. And um, talk about the Zagata acquisition, your first acquisition. Mm -hmm. Why Zagata and why now? Yeah, so it's for us it was a sort of natural thing. Um, SK and I have talked uh, on and off for the last couple of years. So I've always admired not only what they were doing but why they were doing it. Mm. And when I started Culture Amp, the first product I built was actually a performance review tool. Because I was looking at going, why is it that everybody has this, you know, universally loathed annual backwards looking thing when what they actually want is a forward looking continuous coaching conversation. And at the time, eight years ago, we couldn't get enough traction on our idea to really make it work. Um, three or four later, three or four years later, SK and Philip started and built Zagata and they basically did what we set out to do. They just did it better and they took it much, much further. And so it was really exciting to see what they'd been able to do with those ideas. And what led to it for us was we're working with all these customers all over the world, helping them understand essentially their organizational feedback. You know, how does everybody feel about the organization? How do I connect all the different points in the employee life cycle? And what we were finding was that as we're focusing on driving change, a lot of that's at the individual level. And so people started using our platform for individual feedback. Mm. And so we actually built a whole product around strengths-based 360s. But that's a very narrow piece of performance. And so we started getting dragged more and more into people saying, well, we want to use your platform for performance. The truth of the matter is, Coltramp, as it was originally built, was not built for measuring performance. And one of the things that SK said that really stuck with me was he said, the point of performance management is not to measure performance, it's to improve it. Yeah. And so how do we build software that actually drives that improvement? And so it was a natural fit that by bringing their product into our product, we could give people the best of both worlds. So we could give them you know, this world-class leading engagement product and we could give them this world-class leading performance product and then we could connect the dots between the two. And so that's kind of how we got there. And, and the why now is that I think that people are now getting to the point where all the basics are in place and they're starting to figure out, okay, well, how do I leverage this data to make better decisions? And that intersection point is critical. And it's interesting that, let's think back when you started in 2011, that engagement market was very much a once a year thing, if you mm. were lucky. And performance management clearly was a once a year thing, if you were lucky, maybe mm. once every six months. And effectively, they've both moved to this much more of a continual process mm. and feedback based. And you've now brought those two things together. Yeah. And I think uh, when I was trying to build a performance review product, and uh, apologies to the company I'm about to talk about, uh, one of the things that I did at the time was I had a Twitter feed and to, it was inspiration. It was success factors sucks. So anybody that said that, I would see the tweet and I would follow up and try and work out why. Over the coming years, I actually got a lot more respect for success factors because I realized the things that they'd had to do to be successful and the way they'd built it. And I was somewhat naive in, in my approach. But the realization I had was that their genius was that they took an offline process and they took it online. And when you're doing that, nobody's asking whether the process is a good one. They're just like, I don't want to do it on paper anymore. <laughs> just bring it on into the cloud. And what I think we're seeing in the last four or five years is people have finally got to the point where like, well, everything's in the cloud now. It still doesn't work. 
So maybe we should go back and actually re-engineer the process. And we're at the cutting edge of that now as people are trying to figure out how do we do performance? How do we do engagement? How do we do learning? How do we combine all of these things? And certainly the reaction from the analysts, uh, you know, Josh Burson, Stacey Agar mm. and others seem to say it was, a, it was a very smart move. Yeah, well, I was actually, you know, thrilled when we were looking at it and starting to think about it. And I chatted to, to, to both of them and they were like, yes, please. Like, this is awesome because they'd been talking to Zigo for a long time as well. And they were really excited about um, not only what they're doing in the performance space, but also one of their entry points and one of the things that they really focused on and did some really great work, which we're now going to be leveraging too, was uh, the use of ONA and thinking about in the modern world of work, who you need to get feedback from is not your canonical org chart. Yeah. Like you're working with all these different people. You might end up having three managers in a dotted line or a matrix style reporting structure. And so they'd come up with all these interesting ways of trying to understand what you know the modern world of work looks like and then how you use that to drive these processes. And so, yeah, when we told the analysts what we were doing, they're like, oh, this is fantastic. We couldn't think of you know two companies that would uh, work so well together. And, and we had the same response from customers. So it was really nice. People that I really respect kind of calling me up and going, you know, if they say this to me, you know, of course you know you're my favorite, but the second favorite I have is Zesca. So I'm so happy that the two of you have come together. <laughs> I'm well, sure they said the reverse to him. Well, it's a great endorsement. And I think, you know, it's, it's something where we've got to go with HR. We've too long operated in these silos. And actually some of the technology and some of the thinking now is that bringing that across. And how, mm. why wouldn't you want to link engagement with performance? And as you said, tap into to O&A technology as well to understand who you need to get feedback from as well. Mm. And the great opportunity, I was actually talking to SK about this uh, last week, is there's some obvious things. You sit down and say, okay, you know, I want to see how engaged my highest performers are or I want to understand the attrition risk of, of people that are in our succession plan or whatever it might be. But beyond that, there's actually much more interesting questions mm. and there's things where you can really start to, to explore in, in data and going in both directions. And if we think about even where we've seen the engagement world go, you know, it's not just about engagement anymore. It's about well-being. It's about belonging. It's about intersectionality. It's about what is the culture we're trying to build? Uh, where's it working? Where's it not? And I think what we're able to do now with uh, having Zagato as part of the CultureAmp platform is we can do both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So we can give people tools to collect, understand, and act on organizational feedback and individual level feedback. And so for me, that's the, the great promise, which is now we can go to an individual and give them the same sorts of tools that we were giving the organization to try and make sense, but most importantly, do something. Because for all the performance reviews people have been running for years, they haven't actually been improving performance much. No. That's our goal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's, that's the Zagata acquisition. Very exciting stuff. Um, but what's next on the roadmap as well for CultureMap? You know, I know there's a lot of product developments mm. coming. Yeah, so obviously there's a, a lot of work going on bringing Zagata into the CultureMap platform and then bringing our customers the benefit of both of those tools working uh, not just alongside but together. Uh, but in addition to that, there's a whole bunch of other really interesting things happening too. So we just announced our uh, predictive analytic capability. I hate the term predictive analytics because I think it's like just the most <laughs> ridiculous concept. But what I'm really proud of, and, and the reason I hate it is that it can be used in the wrong way, where people are like, you know, we want you to predict this thing. And the problem, and you and I have actually talked about this before, which is like the ethics of statistical learning and, and all of that sort of stuff. But what we are able to do, which I'm so excited about, is we can give people insight and more than just insight, foresight into what is coming. So we can use their data to help them understand who are the people that are most likely to leave. 
you know, where are the points, where are the bright spots, where are the challenging spots, and what are the impacts? And one of the things that we've learned over time is that, uh, and I was actually talking to Amit Mohindra, who used to be at Apple yep. and, um, you know, in- incredible person in the people analytics space, and he said something really profound to me, which is, you know, for so long in people analytics, we've been focused on this idea that if we just have enough compelling data on the screen, people will be forced to take action. And the truth of the matter is most of the people that are having to make these decisions either don't want to yeah. or don't know how to make that decision. It doesn't matter how compelling the case is. And so now we're at this point where we have to understand, well, how do we use people analytics? How do we use data to help people understand what's possible and to understand why they might need to do something? So the reason this is so important, the reason I'm so excited about predictive um, analytics, even though I hate the term, is because it helps people mount a case for change. And the very first thing you need to do is understand what happens if we do nothing. Mm. So before you leap into saying, well, we've got our data back and this is what we should do, you say, we've got our data back. And if we continue on the path we're on, half of the women in engineering are going to leave. Or you know, a third of the people in that new division we just hired won't be here in two years or whatever it is, and you need to let people sit with that a little bit until they're uncomfortable, and they're like, okay, well, we don't want that. Yeah. Like, great, if you don't want that, here's what we can do. And so that's what we're now able to do is we can help people peer around the corner, and we can help them see the impact of doing nothing so that they can start to mount that case to actually do something. And when you compare that with uh, something else that we've got coming, which is what we call uh, deep benchmarking, and so it's this idea that not only hey, I want to compare myself to the new tech benchmark or to the industry benchmark. And I think we're, we're now up into over 70 different benchmarks of different industries and different segments. We can allow you to not only compare yourself to that company, you can say, going back to my earlier example, what's the experience of women at my company compared to women in the benchmark or engineering in my company or sales in my company compared to sales in the benchmark? And so combining that, and combining tools like predictive analytics that can start to tell you what's going to happen or what's likely to happen, um, start to give people much more powerful tools to create the case for change. And then that leads to my third thing, which is I'm you know, probably the most excited about, which is all the work that we're putting into tools to help people act. So it's not just enough to give people the insight. We actually have to help people say, okay, if this is what you want to focus on, what else, what are other people doing to move the needle on that thing? And what's working and what's not? And we're now at this wonderful point where, much like you know, Adam Grant and other people are doing in their labs, organizations can do this in their own companies. They can test things. What happens if we do this? Does it work? Does it not work? And then let's feed that cycle back into the tool and, and share that out to the whole community. And that's always been, for us, one of our most important things, which is how do we bring the power of the community? How do we help you learn from all of the people out there in the world rather than just from one thought leader or yep. one, one place? So a few things there, really. I mean, firstly, Jason, who's the chief mm. scientist at Cultram, he did actually walk me through the predictive analytics Excellent. platform. And I was, yeah, I was pretty excited when I saw it, actually. Um, I like the fact that, it, as you said, it does re- reveal the tension mm-hmm. um, and kind of tells you what happens if you don't do anything. Uh, and the way it works, you know, the way I saw it anyway, that Jason showed there was things down one side that actually tells you what you're doing well. Mm-hmm. And there's things down the other side, there's things that you might want to look at. Mm. which you can deep dive into. And as you said, it, it, it kind of tells you what would happen if you don't do anything. So I think that's that's really good. Um, I also like what you said about the granularity. So you can actually look at, you can with benchmarking, I think sometimes, I don't know if you agree, it can be a little bit, okay, well, our engagement score is this, their engagement score is that. But if you can actually go down a much granular level, and I think that's that's great that, that technology can do that as well. So, And then the community thing. 
So that leads us on to probably the next question. You know, ever since you started, you've had the People Geeks community, which I've been subscribing to for a few years now, and I think the content on there is is really good and, and interesting, and isn't just culture and material. I think mm. as well, which is which is really nice. And of course, last year you had your first culture first conference, and you've just come from the the first one in the in the in UK or in Europe as well. Mm. So tell us a little bit first about the People Geeks community. Yeah, so as you say, that, that's been something from the beginning. We made this conscious decision that we didn't just want to build a software company. We wanted to be part of a, a larger group of people, many of which will be our customers, but many of which won't. That's okay. And it comes from this idea, like, we're obviously heavily rooted in science, and a lot of that is psychology and IO psychology. But I think one of the most profound um, changes in psychology has been this move away from, you're broken, come and sit on the couch, tell me all your problems and then I'll diagnose you and tell you what to do, to you're not broken, you're the expert on you, I have a box of tricks, let me choose the one that might help you become a better version of yourself. Mm. And so Coltramp is built in that image. We're not trying to go to people and say, we're the smartest people in the world, we have the, the only data that matters, you know, we have magic questions that nobody else is allowed to use uh, and you need to listen to us because we're right. Instead what we're trying to say is every culture is different, Everybody's still, there's a lot of commonality, but you're all struggling with your own issues. We want to help you access a world of knowledge and access the right thing and learn from people just like you. And we want to use technology to mediate that and technology to drive that and leverage it. And so, yeah, last year we had our Culture Fist uh, global event in San Francisco and we had a thousand people for two days. Um, we had Patty McCord, we had Adam Grant, um, Lindsay McGregor up on stage. And it was such a phenomenal success. I mean, it was a huge. Uh, investment for us, um, but it was just incredible. And so this year we've doubled down even further and we're running the same event again at the end of July in San Francisco. And that'll be um, probably more like 1,500 people. And we're also doing these Culture Fest forums. So we've done one in Australia. I've, I've literally just come from the one we did here in London. And that's been bringing together um, a, a smaller group, uh, more like 70 CHROs to come together and do exactly what I was just talking about, like share their learnings. Uh, share their understandings and, and work together. And I'm endlessly humbled by the, the community. It's incredible. Both what willing people are willing to share, but just how smart they are. Mm. Did, did the success of Culture First last year surprise you? Yeah. No, not because I didn't think it was going to work, but I just, I walked out just with this incredible sense of joy at seeing all these people come together. And I had my own kind of weird Silicon Valley moment where, on the end of day two, uh, there's a guy that runs Donut AI, which is another interesting company in the HR tech space. He also has a band, and he put together a song for the conference, and all the words were taken from speeches that I'd given. And so I'm sitting there on day two of the conference. We're up on our patio in, in, in San Francisco listening to the CEO of another Silicon Valley company singing a song with words from my presentations and I had to say like am I in a Silicon Valley skit moment <laughs> right now no it was it, it was incredible so what what can people look forward to at culture first this year so there's uh last year we were a little concerned you know, where we're going to be able to hold people's attention for two days we, we have too many people and I think what we walked out was going we didn't have enough time uh, we wanted to do more and we could do more so this year we're going to be announcing the, the speakers but we're going to be continuing down a lot of the lines that we started last year, particularly a focus on diversity and intersectionality, because we see that, we saw it last year and we're seeing it even more now that people just, everybody is, there's so much more will 
but we're not yet seeing the results. Mm. And so we're, we're going to certainly explore that. And then people analytics, culture, and all these different areas, and there'll be some amazing speakers. We had phenomenal speakers last year, and the first thing I said to JD when I walked off the stage is, all right, now you have to top that. Uh, <laughs> and I, I have confidence we will. Good, good. Well, I, I wish I could get over. I, I can't this year, but I'm definitely going to get to the next one, that's for sure. Um, just turning to you, Didier, obviously very successful organization, Coltramp, growing very rapidly. What are some of the challenges involved in being CEO of a, of a successful HR tech company? Oh, I mean, what are the challenges of being a CEO in any fast well, growth company? But, you know, HR tech has its challenges too. I mean, there's a couple of interesting things. One is, historically, HR tech has not been seen as a promising industry. Yeah. So if you look at, you talk to analysts, you talk to VCs, and they're all like, oh, it's a horrible buyer and difficult environment. And I think we're now starting to see, I'm actually seeing people turning around going, we were wrong. This category is actually huge. The opportunity here is huge. Um, but that is still a challenge that you're still having to convince people that what we're doing matters. Um, for me, particularly, you know, we're still doubling year on year. And one of the ways I think about culture is culture is the way things are done around here. And if you consider that you're doubling every year, it means at least half the company has been here for less than 12 months. Yeah. So the culture is constantly in this sort of formative state. And because we're building culture-first software, software to help people put culture first, the bar for us is very high. And we want to hold that bar. And so that's the thing I lose sleep over, which is are we doing enough to continue to deliver that culture-first company at scale? And the answer is never Yes, you can never get there. There's always a little bit more that you can do. That's probably the thing that I struggle with the most. And it's interesting, you mentioned Culture Camp mm. near the start of our conversation, and you mentioned, again, you're doubling every mm. year. You know, that you have, always have to adjust the culture as you go, as you become a bigger organisation, and obviously you're in multiple countries now as well mm. in terms of where people are located. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things, starting in Australia, we're a long way from everywhere. And so we made an intentional decision. We kind of went global early. So, you know, we've had... London, Melbourne, New York, San Francisco, and we were we were four those four offices when we were 150 people, mm. and so we created actually quite a lot of complexity. It's hard running a company across four offices of that size, and so now for us, it's actually building upon that, doubling down in each of those places and and working with it. But I think the interesting thing is is this whole idea of you know eat your own dog food and so on. You know, we're as we're rapidly growing, we're suffering all the same things that we talk to our customers about, having an opportunity to explore all those spaces. And so, in some ways, we're our, our own petri dish for it, for the for the people that we serve. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, this the, the other thing is if we've looked a bit what it's the challenges like being a CEO. Now, we look, if we look at the broader perspective on HR, mm. I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball a little bit. Um, so, this is a question that we're asking everyone that comes on the show. Now, where do you see HR in 2025? Oh, I mean, 2025 is interesting because it's close enough to be real and yeah. but far enough out that things will have changed. Um, I hope that we've continued down the path we've gone, which is that people and culture is taking a bigger and bigger seat. That people are looking at going, look, this is the biggest lever that we have. We need to make this matter. We need to make this count. I worry that we're not going to well enough grab that opportunity and answer some of the difficult questions that have come with it. Uh, and you and I have exchanged blog posts on ethics in, yeah. in people analytics. I think that's a huge issue. And so 
who in an organization is going to help educate people on how to use data, not just in an abstract sense, but when we've got people's you know, careers on the line, when we've got people's livelihoods on the line. And that stuff is just really, really hard. And so in 2025, that's going to be right square in the face. And I think when you zoom right back out 250 years ago, running a company as a CEO or as a board or whatever was relatively easy. Make money. That was it. Yeah. You could destroy the environment. You could do horrible things to people. And nobody cared as long as you made money. As time's gone on, we've realized that we have to meet a broader and broader set of needs, as we should and as we need to. People and culture is the one that is now having to un- help companies understand their obligations around diversity, around inclusion, around mental well-being. So in 2025, that's going to be right smack bang in the middle. And I'm hoping that that means that people and culture as, a, as an area is more relevant than ever. And actually talking about ethics, I mean, I love that, that blog post you wrote. I think it was about, well, about nine months ago, mm. I think, something like that. What were some of the things that you mentioned in there, just so listeners can, well, we'll dig out a link to it so we can send listeners over there as well. well what were some of the highlights from, from your article? Yeah, so the, the key thing, I mean, there's obviously a whole bunch of stuff coming off the back of GDPR and so on where people have to be very careful with how they use data. But the bigger thing for me is helping people understand the misuse of data too, particularly statistical learning. And so the example that I always give is that my dad uh, has prostate cancer and he's had it for a decade. And he's a PhD in psychology, reads research. And he said to me, I can tell you with great deal of certainty what will happen to 10,000 men like me. But I can't tell you anything about what my experience is going to be. Yeah. And the way we see that play out in, in, um, in software is I can tell you that women are more likely to leave your engineering team, five times more likely to leave than men in your engineering team. And that's true. But then what people want is they want a tool that will go to a manager and the manager has five people in his team and one of them is a woman and then he, the tool will tell him she is more likely to leave than those four. Maybe not. Mm. Statistically, that actually may be a poor conclusion, an incorrect conclusion. 50 of her are more likely to leave, but her, no. Yeah. And yet that's a really slippery slope and I'm really worried that we're going to give people tools that get people to make decisions based on faulty data. It's back to what you said earlier. It's about let's let's actually carry out some controlled experiments. Let's let's test. Let's learn. Let's validate and improve. Mm, exactly. And and let's understand. Uh, you know what what's a what's a one way decision? What's a two way decision? What can we try? What is safe to try? Mm. Uh, and what are the consequences if we're wrong? And how do we think about this? And so I think there's a lot for us people and culture to learn from medicine, to learn from you know all these other fields that have had to struggle with these questions for a long time. Didier, I think we could probably carry on talking for the rest of the day, but unfortunately, we have to end the show now. Um, How can people, firstly, thank you for being on the show, and how can people stay in touch with you and with Culture Thank you for having me here. This is so much fun having an opportunity to talk to people in this forum. Obviously, the website's an easy place to find us, uh, www.cultureamp.com. And then we have a very active uh, Twitter community and also our PeopleGeek community, which you can sign up for. So peoplegeeks.com uh, is a community of over 50,000 people now uh, who all care about this problem. So that would be my thing. If you've enjoyed anything that I've said, um, join that PeopleGeek community and come and help us change the world because uh, that's why I built the company. Didier, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on iTunes and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com 
for the latest news on the future of HR, and you can also subscribe to my newsletter there too. That's all for this week, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Yvette Cameron, founder and principal analyst at NextGen Insights, on how blockchain will disrupt the future of HR technology. See you next time.